My name is Tommy Allen, and I'm the lead pastor of New Hope Presbyterian Church, and this is the second Sunday of Advent. We are glad you are here. Um, by Advent, of course, we mean um, the coming of Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Advent. We celebrate the coming of Advent in the past, um, or coming of Jesus in the past. We celebrate and anticipate his coming again in the future, and we celebrate and anticipating his coming into our lives even now during this season. Now, some people say Advent in the context of church, but we also celebrate and we mean Christmas. That's what all this stuff is about. What is Christmas about and what is Advent about? That's what we are celebrating. This is our 21st sermon, I believe, in the Jesus Storybook Bible series. And we have a lot to cover this morning. It's the last story from the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And so I thought I would open by reading a, a portion of the this week's New Testament reading for Advent, which is about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, of course, was the forerunner of Jesus. John the Baptist comes and he says, the Messiah is coming. Jesus shows up and John says, there he is. And so I will just read you verses six through eight of chapter one in Mark. It says, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I always feel like I have to do John in sort of a little Irish accent because he reminds me of the crazy guy, Irish guy in Braveheart. Either way, let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would raise in our hearts an anticipation of your action in our lives. I pray that you be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. You know, I thought I'd start this morning with a question as I often do. And the question is this, um, in your opinion, who won the 2020 presidential election? Joe Biden or Donald Trump? What's that? Ooh, watch your language. Um, it depends who you ask, doesn't it? Like, you know, some people say Joe Biden's president-elect is over. I mean, the media proclaimed that. There's other independent media that said the electors haven't even voted. You can't say that until they've voted and Donald Trump has conceded. There's all this tension out there. Now, whether you are a Democrat or a Republican or an independent, whoever you are, you have to admit it makes for a pretty good story. In other words, all the best stories have some kind of incredible tension and they have a resolution at the end. I don't know how this story will be resolved, but the tension has me on the edge of my seat. And if you think about it, the whole Bible is like um, this great big story and there is tension in it, right? God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. He made them perfect. They were holy and happy with God and they sinned and fell. God said he would come and fix it. And then the whole Bible has just been up and down and up and down. And you are on the edge of your seat. When is the hero going to come and fix it? You know, David uh, Wilcox is one of my favorite musicians. And he has a song called Love Will Show the Way. And, and it's about the story of our lives. And he basically says, if someone wrote the play just to glorify what's stronger than hate, would they not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? Did you get that? If someone wrote the play just to glorify what's greater than hate, would they not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? I mean, a story is even better when there's all this tension and it looks as if it's too late and suddenly the hero does appear. Then your heart even raises more. 
the people that are reading the book of Malachi for the first time, the people to whom that book was written are people whose lives feel like the hero came too late. In other words, they're, they're living in a time right before the hero has come and they think it's too late. Nothing is going to change. Nothing is going to get any better. We're just going to be on lockdown, if you will, forever. And Malachi comes with a message and his message is this, is it ain't over till it's over. And if God promised he would come, he is going to come and save you. So before we jump into Malachi, uh, it would be helpful to, to cover some of the context. And that context is in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they originally were one book. And they're really about three people or three leaders. Um, the three leaders are Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. And the timeline goes something like this. In uh, 597 BC, um, Judah and Jerusalem is conquered by Babylon and they are carried away by the Babylonians and they're carried away into Babylon. And about 60 years later, the Persians defeat the Babylonians in 539 BC. And then in 538 BC, King Cyrus says to Zerubbabel, this guy, he says, go, you can go back, take, take some of your people and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild your temple. By the way, Zerubbabel means um, born in Babel, Babylon. And so he does that and they go back to Jerusalem and they rebuild Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple and they reestablish sacrifices and they celebrate Passover and then sort of nothing, just sort of fizzles. I, I mean, literally in Ezra one through six, you have all this stuff happening. And then after chapter six, nothing happens. And 60 years later is where the story picks up again. And in that six years, apparently, the people who have returned back to Jerusalem have fallen into a sort of spiritual malaise. And in other words, they're not really on fire for the Lord. They're just going through the motions. And so another uh, Persian king at the time, uh, Darius sends, um, or Artaxerxes sends Ezra back. And Ezra's job is to basically teach the law and to rebuild the community. In, in other words, he's going back to, to plant a church, if you will, to, to get things back rolling, to get them back on track, spiritually speaking. And he does that. And at the same time, a, another man, Nehemiah, is sent and he brings another wave of exiles. And Nehemiah is an administrator and sort of a soldierly type. And his job is to build the wall and to protect Jerusalem from people coming in and harming her and to sort of execute these reforms, to, to crack down on evildoers and things like that. And between Ezra and Nehemiah, there is a, this great bright spot in chapters um, basically 8 through 12 of Nehemiah. Um, you see, they, Ezra, in, in those chapters, at the beginning of Ezra, Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra starts teaching the law, and he's reading the law to them, and they basically repent. They become convicted. They confess their sins. They renew their covenant, and, and everything is awesome by the end of Nehemiah chapter 12. Like, we're back on track. We're going to do this thing. Uh, Nehemiah goes to Babylon for about a year to take care of some business and comes back, and when he comes back, everything has, gone, has just fallen. I mean, the, the temple is in disrepair. People are working on the Sabbath, which was a big deal to him. The wall that he had built had been just basically turned into a marketplace. It wasn't well guarded anymore. And Nehemiah's summary of basically the whole book was like, I tried. God, just remember that I tried. Like I, I beat my head against the wall trying to get these people to reform 
and they won't. And just remember that I tried. That's all that you need to remember that I, Nehemiah, did as much as I could to get these people to do what they're supposed to do, and they didn't do it. That's how it ends. That's pretty anticlimactic, wouldn't you say? For you see, these people were sent back, and during the first, when, when they first got back, Haggai and Zechariah were preaching to them build, rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem, and God will come back in your midst. He will take care of you, He will come among you. And when they did it and God didn't show up, they were sort of like, eh, okay, this, what, why are we bothering with this? That is the, the atmosphere into which Malachi enters. That's the context into which he is sent as the last Old Testament prophet. Israel, Judah was sent back to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. They did. It didn't seem like it was worth it to them. And so they just went about their secular businesses they, they wanted to. And so God sent Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet. And basically his job was to remind them that God isn't finished with them. And that the hero hasn't come too late. But in fact, the hero is on his way. And so given the fact the hero's on his way, they ought to, to get their lives in order now. And right, that's the same message for us. We celebrate Advent to remind ourselves that the hero is on his way. That he came once and saved us from our sins, and he's coming once again to judge the quick and the dead. We remind ourselves of that every Advent. As you look at Malachi, um, it's basically built around these six disputations or lawsuits. I don't have time to go into all of them. Uh, I'm just going to hit uh, two or three of them before we get to the end. But it, it'll give you some sense of what the, the argument that God is having with Israel at this time, right before the time of Jesus. And so the first dispute is this, is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, how the disputes work is basically one or the other, God or Israel will ask a question and the other person will, will give a reply to it. And so God says in verse 2, it says of chapter 1, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Answer, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So what's this first dispute? The first dispute basically has to do with whether or not God actually loves them. How do they know that God loves them? He says, I've loved you. And they say, how do we know? And he comes back to them by saying, um, is not Esau Jacob's brother? In other Esau, Jacob, I loved and Esau, I hated. In other words, Jacob is Israel and you, Israel, are my covenant people. You are the ones that I took as my treasure possession. You are the ones to whom I gave all the promises. You are the ones who carry my blessing to the nations. You are the one to whom I promised that your descendants will be greater than the stars in the heavens and that you will inherit not only this little piece of land, but you will inherit the whole world. I have loved you as a son and I have made you my covenant people, right? I have covenanted with you that may it be on my own head, may I die if I don't do all the good things that I have promised to you. How can you even ask me that? How do you know God loves them? I mean, let me give you an example from Nehemiah chapter nine. Remember in, in Nehemiah chapter nine, this is when they're doing the confessing of sins, right? In, in chapter nine, verse three, it says, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, 
For another quarter of it, they make confession and worship the Lord their God. And these are the kinds of things that they're saying during the confession. Verse 7, you are the Lord of God, our God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abram. You saw, verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf. Right? So who, how do they know that God loves them? They only need to look back and see what he has done for them that he rescued them over and over again. And when they were stiff-necked and when they opposed him, he did not forsake them. In other words, if you want to know if God loves you, don't look just at your own experience of the present, but look at the past and what he has done for you. Look not only at his faithfulness to you in your own life, but look back at the cross. If you have any doubt whether or not God loves you, look to the cross. Remember, 1 John says this, but this is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as what? As a propitiation for our sins. In other words, Jesus went to the cross because God gave him. He gave him on our behalf because he loved us. And he went there as a propitiation, as payment, as a sacrifice of atonement for the sins that we had committed. Right? It's one thing to pay someone's debt who, that you care about and you love. It's another thing to pay someone's debt if they are your enemy. And that is exactly what God did. Remember Romans 5 said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know God loves you? Simply look to the cross. He gave everything for you out of his great love. The second disputation I want to look at here, the second argumentation, there's a, there's, there are is one that comes after this about them offering, you know, God said, you've defiled me. And they say, how do you know that? And he said, but you brought lame animals to the sacrifice. Try that. Try doing that to the IRS, basically. But the one I want to look at is in chapter two, starting at verse 10 and 11 says, and 11 says this, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. In other words, so the first, number one, the, the, the nation has committed spiritual adultery by going after a foreign god. That God is their husband and they've gone after. And that leads him to a second point, which is this. He says, the second thing you do, verse 13, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? In other words, they're saying God won't even listen to us anymore. And he answers, he says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. In other words, he's saying, the nation has committed adultery against me corporately, but that's only really a symptom of the fact that individuals are committing adultery with their own, within their own families, with their own wives. He says, you haven't been faithful to your wives. He says, 
how do I know you haven't been faithful to me is because you haven't been faithful to your wife. You turn when you turn against your wife, you actually are turning against me. And for a number of reasons, the primary of which is the relationship between the husband and wife is one of the primary witnesses that godly people have to the world of what God is like, right? What is it like to have a, a be in a relationship with someone who loves you unconditionally and who forgives you and someone who's willing to pay your debts and all these kinds of, it's, it's to be married. And there's another thing here, which is interesting. It's easy to miss when he says, what is the one thing God's seeking from your spiritual union? And he says, godly offspring. In other words, one of the reasons the nation is probably committing spiritual adultery back then and now even, I guess, is because people are not raising godly offspring. And you can't raise godly offspring if you're not godly yourself. You can't raise faithful offspring if you are not a faithful parent. And so one of the things God's pointing out to these people is you need to focus on A, having kids if you're able to, and B, raising them in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. Because in doing that, you will be faithful to me. So be faithful to your wife, raise godly kids, and that will be an expression of your faithfulness to me. The next dispute, and the last one really I'm going to, to look at, I'm going to combine two. And the, the fourth dispute is in chapter 2, verse 17, where basically the people say, where is this God of justice? Right? They're, they're sort of trying to, to push back and say, you know, okay, you're making all these accusations against us, but we look out and it says the, the wicked constantly prof, prosper. It doesn't look like evildoers get punished. Right? I mean, if it, it, they have the same questions we have. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I watch the news and I, I read a lot of, of, of news on the web and I'm, I'm constantly thinking, why isn't someone getting arrested for this? And it could be discouraging. So that leads basically to the last one, or the last uh, two that I want to look at is for chapter 2, verse 17. They said, you have wearied the Lord by your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them or by asking, where is this God of justice? And it's interesting how God responds. They say, where is this God of justice? In chapter three, verse one, he says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare a way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. There are basically two messengers here. There's, there's one that comes at the end, Elijah, and there's one here and the messenger is the Lord. You want a messenger to tell you what's what? He is coming and he will show up suddenly in your temple and he will come as a refiner's fire and he will separate the wheat from the chaff. He says in verse five, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against sorcerers and adulterers and against those who swear falsely and oppress the hired worker in his wages and the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You see, one of the things we see here is one of the things that's often left out of Advent, right? Advent means coming. And they say, where is this God of justice? And he says, justice is coming, right? It's like at the end of Tombstone or toward the end where Kurt Russell says, you tell him I'm coming and hell's coming with me, right? In some sense, that is a message of Advent. We tend to think it's sort of just lights and Christmas carols and cookies and eating too much and fun and presents, but there is also a great aspect of Advent that is judgment for those who are not prepared and those who are wicked and those who refuse to turn from their sins. I mean, when's the last time you saw a Hallmark 
movie um, that was about justice and the separating of the wheat and the chaff and people being cast into outer darkness that probably wouldn't sell very well. But that also is part of the message of Advent, that when Messiah comes, he comes not only to save, but he comes to confirm the judgment that people already have on themselves. And he will separate the wheat from the chaff and he will separate the sheep from the goats. And that leads to the last disputation, at least the last one we'll look at in chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. It's a very similar thing. Um in which they said in verse 14 says you have said it is vain to serve god what is the profit of keeping his charge or walking as a morning before the lord and now we call the arrogant blessed the evildoers not only prosper but they put god to the test and they escape and they're, they're asking the same question again where is this god of justice you're asking us to live godly lives to be faithful to our wives we are asking us a little earlier to tithe to start giving to to maintain the temple to do all of these things and the real question for us is, why bother? What profit is there in walking like this and walking before the Lord of hosts when the evildoers just get away with everything? And that's a great question, but so is God's answer. God's answer is basically this. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared and the Lord esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between him who serves God and the one who does not serve him. You know, you get this picture of people complaining, and then there's a group of people sort of whispering, saying, you know, I don't, I don't want to be with these complainers over here. I want to, you know, I'm trying to follow the Lord. I want to. And what God says to those people is, I see that. I see that you are trying. I see that you desire to follow me. And I'm writing that down in my book of remembrance. And in the day when I'm in that day, I will make you my treasure possession and spare them as a man spares his son. And then once more, you will see the separation and the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. In other words, he says, hang in there. He says, I know there are some among you who are really actually trying to do this. You might falter and you might stumble, but I know you're trying. And let me tell you that one day you will be rewarded. One day, I, I promise you, I will not forget. Your names are in this book of remembrance and you will be mine. You are my treasured possession. I will love you like I love a son. And he ends with this note of grace and encouragement to them. In chapter four, he says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all the evildoers will, will be stubble. And the day is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves. In, in other words, he's saying that it might feel bad now, but I promise you, I am coming to make things better. How will you know? Verse four, he says, remember the law of my servant Moses. And then verse five, he says, behold, I will send you Elijah. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In other words, he basically says to Israel then that all of those of you who are longing for my coming, you are going to know that my arrival is almost there 
when Elijah comes. He's going to come before me. It's going to be like a warning. So you will know to be ready. And remember in the New Testament, like Jewish people, I think today even believe that Elijah has not come. And Jesus says, if you're willing to believe it, that John the Baptist was that Elijah. John the Baptist, the one who pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is that Elijah. And this story of Elijah and the story of John the Baptist pointing the way to Jesus always reminds me of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, even when it's not Advent time. Why is that? If you remember in the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, in his travels, he, Rudolph ends up on the island of misfit toys, which is, you know, that always makes me laugh because it, it should be like the, the island of poorly engineered toys, really, honestly, um, because all the toys have some great malfunction, like a, a train with square wheels or a squirt gun that shoots jelly or a Charlie in the box. Nobody wants a Charlie in the box. Obviously, I do. But nonetheless, couldn't he have just changed his name? Either way, it works for the story. Remember, Charlie says, when you go to see Santa, remember us. Come and save us. And Christmas comes. And remember, it's the greatest storm of all time. And Santa, very hypocritically, frankly, asks Rudolph to guide his sleigh that night after a lifetime of criticizing him for that nose. And nonetheless, Rudolph says yes, because Rudolph is full of grace and mercy. And as they, the island of misfit toys is sitting around on Christmas Eve night, I think you get the idea that they think it's another Christmas Eve and we're just going to get left behind. It's over. It's too late. And they're poking sticks in the fire. They're doing whatever they do. And suddenly they look up and they see Rudolph's nose in the clouds and their hearts leap, they rejoice. And they rejoice not because um, Rudolph is their savior, but they know that when they see Rudolph's nose that the savior is not far behind, that Santa is the one who will take them and save them. And so they know because when they see the messenger coming that the savior is close at hand. And we know in the same way that during Advent we celebrate and contemplate that our own deliverance is nigh. There's a good Christmas word for you. So let me finish our time right now by reading from the Jesus Storybook Bible how they finish. Sally Lloyd-Jones finishes this story. She says, it had taken centuries for God's people to be ready, but now the time had almost come for the best part of God's plan. God himself was going to come, not punish his people, but to rescue them. God was getting ready to wipe away every tear from every eye, and the true party was just about to begin. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I do thank you for this word you've given us from Malachi, and I pray that we would be those who anticipate um, and those who do not give up hope because we know, Jesus, that you will come uh, right exactly when we need you to be here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. At this point in the service, we typically would have a offertory. We would have a doxology first and then we'd have an offertory and then we would um, afterward we would celebrate communion and obviously we're not doing that I just want to take this time to say if you would like to give at this time um, you can do so with the information that's in the description section below I think I forgot to mention at the beginning um, one of the great things that is happening um, during Christmas time here um, is that we are doing Zoom sing-alongs. Actually, I do think, but let me remind you again, um, you can find that information in the description below if you want to join us tonight and for the rest of the Sundays during Advent season to sing carols with some of our music people. And so I'm so thankful for that. 
And I thought I would end today with a confession, a profession of faith from the Heidelberg Catechism number 52. And the question is this, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Answer, in all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. Amen and amen. Let me send you from this virtual place by saying that I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. I hope to see you tonight. See you. Have a great week.